0: Let's try this. You're listening to Almost Heretical,
1: a podcast embracing life after evangelicalism. Coming to you from a shed in Bend, Oregon. Welcome to the podcast. Almost Heretical. Let's say welcome to...
0: You can find us online at almostheretical.com.
1: Here we are, Almost Heretical, episode two. Episode 2. So a big part of what we want to do this podcast is, uh, is try to back up a bit from some of these Twitter debates and heated conversations that uh, we seem to always be having and go back to sort of the beginning of the road with some of our ideas, especially as it pertains to Christian theology and what the Bible means and what we're supposed to do with it and reexamine some of our foundations and some of where we're going to start over the next few episodes is going back to the beginning of the story of the Bible, back to to Genesis, and essentially trying to to follow some breadcrumbs and uh, and pay attention to some clues that will reveal. Man, we've we've missed a lot here, and there is such a, a massive chasm between our worldview today and the worldview of the biblical authors and the audience that they were writing to, and how they thought about life and thought about how how the cosmos was organized and. Uh, and what it meant to be human, and what it meant to know God—all all of that stuff—we're coming from such a different angle that there are things that we simply read and interpret in a way that it would be totally foreign to the original authors, and there are things that we totally miss because we just don't have a paradigm for them. So, what we're going to do is kind of—it'll probably end up being one of our deepest dives into some biblical theology, going back to the beginning and uh, and trying to pick up some of those missing pieces, fill in some of the gaps of our in our information. And uh, what I think we're going to discover is sort of some mind-blowing uh, twists and turns along the way and some stuff that we just never realized was there.
0: Yeah, and I think the reason we want to go back to the beginning is because if you get the beginning wrong and maybe there's other stuff there that we're not seeing or other stories they had in their head that we don't have in our head, then then you have kind of the whole problem wrong, the the problem that we're trying to solve. And if you have the problem wrong, then... The problem with that is you kind of make up solutions or there's kind of half solutions that you that you run with and um, they never quite answer all the problem and they never quite feel right. So the goal here is to go back to the beginning, to re-examine the fall, we're going to start there, and see if there's something bigger going on, hint, there is, <laughs> that we can then use to, uh, to bring to the practical, um, the conversations we're having with our friends and our family and our neighbors. And so, yeah, that's what we're trying to do
1: yeah, so if you're like us kind of grew up where you have a a paradigm that uh, that you sort of filter the whole uh, world of theology through, it's this creation fall, redemption three part paradigm. And uh, we can get into whether or not that's valid uh, later as a paradigm. but essentially uh, what's what's peculiar is the way we frame it, it, it makes it sound like those are almost like one third equally weighted. But the reality is that, that you get into both uh, the creation and the origin story, the kind of origin mythology that the, the biblical authors had in mind, and you get into a, a much more complex view of the fall than, than we, most of us, have uh, been taught to consider. And then you even get into essentially a, at least beginning statement of what redemption will mean and entail, literally all within the first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis. Less than 1% of the entire Bible. So everything from that point on is based on having a really sufficient, thorough grasp of what the problem is that the rest of this story is working to resolve. And so we're going to spend sort of an inordinate amount of time in these early chapters because logically it's just demanded to 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 get a basic framework for theology, Uh, it's kind of like the analogy if you read a book or watch a movie. Say you know you're reading Harry Potter, and you decide to just skip the first book in the series uh, of Harry Potter, you can read books two through seven and still find some pretty interesting, insightful, exciting stories. But the reality is you're going to be missing. A whole boatload of points. And even worse, you won't just be confused uh, and kind of ignorant as you go. There will be multiple occasions where you think you know precisely what's happening, but because you're missing the whole reference point, because you didn't read book one, you'll be thinking you get it when you absolutely don't. And that's one of the most toxic Forms of confusion in terms of ideas, especially when it comes to religious theology, is is the confidence that we're getting something right, and which that confidence causes us to not even check for blind spots or to re-examine our thinking. And when it's based on holes or missing pieces of information, um, what it can become is. Uh, is basically this sense of false security uh, that what we believe is the way that that everybody is supposed to believe. And part of what Nate and I have experienced is what this creates is just dead ends. Uh, A lot of the conversations, a lot of the debates, a lot of the massive division in the culture and the church, uh, it's just two groups or parties on different sides of an aisle that feel like their way of seeing things is absolutely the only one. And there's just no budging. And so a big part of our heart to say that actually, if we do decent biblical theology, if we just start to read a little better and a little more carefully and listen more attentively, there's a whole world of additional information, a whole world of new perspective that we can take and then apply to uh, some of the most important issues of our day. I think it's important to also say right around now, like,
0: part of the reason we call the show Almost Heretical is because we know that some of the stuff that we're going to hear or even going back and and looking at some of these verses again and saying, "Hey, maybe there's something else going on here to a lot of people they're going to say that's that's heresy to do that um and I think that's part of the problem it's It's too easy in our day and age, these two groups that tim talked about it's it's too easy in our in our day and age and our in this this time in the church right now, maybe it's actually been happening for hundreds of years. To look at a group of people or a person that is that loves the Bible and is uh re examining some things and um and wanting to have integrity in how they're doing that and um is being careful in that way, to, to look at them and to say, Okay, they're they're now outside. Um, they're now outside this circle that I'm drawing. And uh and so we'll pray for them, they're on the outside, whatever, but but uh yeah, it's a slippery slope to to basically not being a Christian anymore, and the problem with that is it keeps people from exploring their questions, and it forces them to be certain about what they believe, and and certain about things that they might not even believe, just to stay inside this circle.
1: And I think I think a lot of people have uh, have been told and come to feel that if you get to a place where you're questioning uh, your church uh, or your pastor's position or the interpretation of your tradition, or you get to a place where you're questioning the validity of you know, some of these coalitions that have positioned themselves as the religious authority. Uh, you're made to feel like it's you versus the Bible. So part of the reason we chose the, the title Almost Heretical is kind of to poke at that and say, hey, there are a whole lot of ways of looking at this thing, a whole lot of ways of making sense of Jesus in the Bible. And s- some of the groups that are the most uh, adamant that they have the authority to say what is good and true and orthodox are some of the groups that are most missing it and some of the groups that are that are most lacking some of the big picture so we're in no way claiming that we have the the true interpretation or the one great you know denominational approach uh, to end them all but this is our attempt to sort of get out of that fight for a little bit and say hey let's just actually explore and ask some honest questions and be honest with what we're wrestling with and the reality is i think what we're going to find is awesome as, as Nate mentioned before, it can be painful to go through a season of deconstruction where it feels like old ideas have to die, and therefore old identities based on those ideas, or even the, the tribal affiliations of the church communities that we were a, a part of and attached to, those might have to die as well. But the reality is there's a whole other world uh, to, to be born into. So here's our attempt at kind of diving in. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian. I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs)
0: Okay, so we are going to go back to the beginning of the Bible and we're going to reread this story and see if we've missed anything. And I want to be clear that some of this stuff we're going to get into, some of the stuff is weird. And it's the verses that we just kind of skip over and get on to the stuff we do understand. And uh, we're not going to do that. We're going to sit in those verses and we're going to see if there's a connection between some of this stuff. But I want to be clear, this whole podcast isn't going to be just about finding the weird verses in the Bible. Our goal is to look at these verses, see if there's some things that connect them, and if there's some bigger story going on that maybe we haven't really paid attention to. And then we're going to use that framework to go back and talk about the issues that are so important in our day. Christianity and Trump's America, and race, and gender equality, and power, and control. And we're going to see if this new framework helps us have these conversations in a better, more helpful way without kind of banging our head against the walls and continuing to run into the same
1: roadblocks. And as Nate said, some of this stuff's going to be weird. And that actually shouldn't be surprising. Some of the reason it's it's new to us or some of the reason we've skipped over some of these passages and ideas in the biblical text is because it feels weird. It feels uncomfortable. Uh, we'll look at some verses that uh, that essentially I think most of us have just all quietly agreed to to not really talk about and pretend aren't there. And the reality is that I think we all hoped that the effect of that choice would be pretty minimal. But as the case we've made, it's not. These are some of the foundational passages, the text that everything else is built on. And uh, and so what happens is, by the time you get to the end of the story, by the time we get 2,000 years later with all sorts of developments in our thinking, those holes, those missing pieces have steered us off course so far that some of the things that that are to us core ideas to our theology are are drastically skewed because of some of the stuff we missed on these beginning pages of the text. So get ready. It's going to be weird. It's going to be uncomfortable. And that's the point. All right, Tim, I think we've prepared them. They're ready for you to
0: unleash the dragon. So let's go. Let's do this. What do you got?
1: Yeah. I mean, so I'm still looking for, (laughs) for a, a term to label this box, uh, that, that I'm saying is kind of Pandora's box that we're about to unleash, uh, unwittingly upon, Uh, you poor souls, but uh, we just keep calling it the weird stuff or, or I've used this metaphor of sort of backfilling missing information. Uh, But I think really what we're going to sort of be searching for is trying to get closer to the worldview, the framework and especially the, the cosmological worldview in terms of, you know, how this, this cosmos, this, this universe, this world is arranged and who's here and what are our roles and that sort of thing. Um, and and sort of origin stories, uh, to to get closer to what the biblical authors and the original biblical audiences uh, had in their heads, and uh, we'll kind of use some examples and and get into uh, some particular cases. But what we'll see is that there are some places where the Bible's just clearly saying things that we really haven't listened to, and we'll focus on some of those. But there's also a lot that that the the bible doesn't there aren't passages of the bible that sit down and, and the author says okay i'm going to explain this idea to the listener and because there aren't passages of just a clear explanation of an idea now thousands of years later when we read it we 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 don't get those ideas and yet there are there are ideas that the authors simply assume that their audience was familiar with. And and the reason they don't sit down and explain it is because they, they feel so confident that they can assume that everybody's familiar with those ideas. So it's actually some of the most foundational worldview ideas that oftentimes are left out of the text that we have, and they're left out because they could be so easily assumed to be understood by By everybody around and what we're going to do is is almost like look for breadcrumbs and clues where the author may be talking about something else but in his wording in the metaphors he chooses to use in the metaphors he chooses not to use there there are little clues that show up that there is some idea or story or kind of mythological concept that both he and his readers have in their heads And some of them end up being absolutely huge and central and paradigmatic for the entire biblical story. So what we're going to do is almost kind of like some detective work. I've done a lot of that work ahead of time, mostly following some other really great scholars, but collected some of the major pieces. And so what we're going to do is kind of jump in there and look at it. We'll never perfectly arrive at the worldview of the biblical authors, but once we've made some major strides, and and I'll contest that there are some... uh, a few particular pieces that we are glaringly missing and that were totally central to the whole world of, uh, of ancient Israel. That once we get those pieces, then we can go and re-examine some of the texts that some of us have been reading our entire lives and either had no idea what to do with or thought we knew what to do with and see, oh, actually sometimes those are about something entirely other than what we thought they're about. So we're going to be kind of searching for a worldview. And and the reason Nate and I kind of call this the weird stuff is that some of the pieces that are most absent from our modern Western secularized worldview now, when we go find them, they feel really strange and uncomfortable to us. And a lot of it we'll see has to do with a conception of a supernatural a heavenly realm and a whole organization of beings that live in that realm and relationships between that realm and the realm that we live in here on earth. A lot of it is stuff that we just simply don't talk about in church and uh, and certainly don't talk about with our friends at work or anything like that. So it feels weird. It feels strange. It feels like, you know, why, why are we talking about this stuff? What does it have to do with Jesus at times? But we'll make the case that it, it has everything to do with it. Uh, has everything to do with Jesus and the whole rest of the, the story of the Bible. Essentially, we're going to try to stop protecting ourselves and stop protecting you all from the discomfort of some of these passages and just try to get into it for a little bit and try to come out the other side. Cool. Let's do it. So uh, the first piece of weirdness that we're going to jump into, uh, I think everybody's familiar with, with the idea that Christianity and, and Judaism are, are monotheistic. Uh, and I'm not going to argue that they aren't monotheistic, uh, but I'm going to try to make the case here that, that monotheism, at least Jewish monotheism, and therefore Christian monotheism, does not mean what most all of us have, have thought that that means. Specifically, it doesn't mean that God is the only divine spiritual being that exists. And we'll have to do some definitions and get into some words here. But let's just look at a few passages and just kind of take a second to be like, huh, yeah, there's there's something interesting there. So I'll read through a few passages and then we'll get into some more and more detail later. So first one to look at Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Skip down a little bit to verse 6. This is Yahweh speaking. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Okay, that's interesting. It appears that in this psalm, God is talking to some other beings called gods. Okay, let's look at the very beginning of the Bible and go to Genesis 1. In this first chapter, this first creation account, you have God creating uh, the earth, the land, and the seas, animals. And then in verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Stop. First of all, if, I guess, first question, who is God talking to? that he's willing to say something out loud to another person at all. And if he's using the plural language of let us make mankind in our plural image, in our plural likeness, what the heck is going on here? And I think a lot of us, since it's Genesis 1, we've all at least gotten this far in our Bible reading plans once. Uh, We've encountered this verse before. Um, But I think it just kind of seems so ambiguous, so mysterious, so uh, subtle even, that we're just like, well, don't really know what to do there, so we'll just kind of forget about it. But you literally only have to go three chapters forward to Genesis 3. So now you've had the creation story. And then you have the fall of Adam and Eve, which we're going to get to uh, quite a bit. But for now, just look at verse 22. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. So, once again, you have God speaking in a reference to some sort of community, some sort of group that he is a part of that, again, apparently existed before the creation of Adam and Eve. And I'll just say here, if if we think that in the first three chapters of the Bible, if these writers weren't careful enough to figure out whether they wanted to use singular verbs or plural verbs, we're joking ourselves. There's something very intentional, careful, purposeful, and, and actually theologically loaded that's happening here. And secondary piece, the fact that the Jewish community <laughs> didn't struggle with this kind of language for hundreds and hundreds of years indicates that there's something in their mind that allowed them to make sense of this kind of language that isn't in our mind. And so where we get confused, and this is this will be kind of a, a hermeneutical uh, approach for us, if we get confused or caught up or stuck in an argument that the majority of the Jewish community or even the church community never got caught up at that point, then we're probably have backed ourselves into some sort of dead end and made a mistake at some point. And it's probably worth backing up to see if we can uh, figure out where we've gone wrong. One more this one will, uh, we'll spend a lot of time in. And I think it's probably, in terms of weird Bible passages go, it's probably, uh, the pinnacle of Genesis 6. And th- this is the one I laugh that th- there legitimately is just an unspoken consensus in the church, at least in the world I come from, that we're just not gonna talk about this. <laughs> and when we all do our Bible reading plans, We're going to read through the creation story. We're going to talk about Adam and Eve. We're going to talk about the serpent. We're going to read Genesis 6, 1 through 4. We're going to go, huh. And then we'll go back to Noah and the flood story, and we'll talk about that stuff a little more. I'll read it here so we can uh, take it in for a second. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim, or giants, were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what what we'll spend a, a few episodes doing is actually showing that while right now, for most of us, we read that, throw up our hands and go, this makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, not only is is there a way to make sense of this, there's a way to make pretty clear sense of this. There's actually a way to to gather a lot of meaning from this passage. And we'll start to see that we shouldn't be surprised this is this is some of the earliest stuff written in the entire biblical story it ends up being actually completely central and referenced later on throughout throughout the scriptures uh, and is essentially referencing an idea or a story uh, a kind of framework of of the beginnings of uh, creation that every biblical writer and pretty much every, bible studying jew had a had a clear conception of in their mind and in our western protestant world we simply have no idea what this is even referencing and this is one of the this is evidence essentially of one of the the biggest gaps that we have in our information in our our kind of worldview. And this gap just ends up widening and widening and widening as you get further and further in the story uh, to the point where you, you get to the the end of the scriptures and the things that the book of Revelation, for instance, is saying that are assuming you know this and you've known how the rest of the text have interacted with a text like this. Uh, if, if you've been, uh, if you miss that bus all the way back here in Genesis 6, then we end up so far from what a lot of the later texts are saying. We, we simply don't know what they're about. And so I use the metaphor of like uh, watching a movie or reading a book. Pretty much every decent story centers around some sort of problem that needs to be resolved. And in the collective story that the, the library of scripture uh, tells, the problem is presented very early. We see it in Genesis 3. And so, for us, we're actually going to spend some of the first few episodes talking about the fall, or to to kind of back up from that sort of loaded language, talking about the problem in this story that the Bible is telling, and so that when we move forward, we have a better picture of of what the Bible is trying to to resolve and how it's going about trying to resolve that. And we'll see that this this passage here, Genesis 6, 1-4, through 4, is actually a part, of, an important layer of that, that problem. And just to highlight another one, go to the end, go to the New Testament and Revelation. We'll see lines like this, and it's, it's throughout the scriptures, but just to use one example, in, in one of the letters to the churches, Revelation 2, in this kind of language actually shows up in all of the seven letters about the reward coming to those who persevere. But look at Revelation two twenty five and 26. However, hold on to what you have until I come. And to the one who conquers, perseveres, and who continues in my deeds until the end, I will give him authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod, and like clay jars, he will break them to pieces. Now, what do we do with a text like that? When we sit around a group of people and talk about what does it mean to be a Christian and in uh, our time and place, and we'll see that there's a whole world of paradigms of, found, of frameworks of ideas that that this line and lines like it are making a reference to. That if you if we're missing that framework, either a we look at this and go, I have no idea what it means for Jesus. To give me authority over the nation, so I'll rule them, or worse, we make up what we think that means. And Nate and I'll probably share all sorts of our thoughts on kind of the religious right in America and people like Franklin Graham and all that sort of thing. But safe to say, it is it is not only uh, you don't only miss things if you're if you're missing some of this framework. You actually it poses a danger. Uh, to, to getting to the place where you're, we're making up for ourselves essentially what to do with these texts. So one, one of the petitions we'll make here is that what Jewish monotheism means, when we think about texts like Psalm 82 and God talking seemingly to other beings in the creation account, we'll get into some of the details later on, what Jewish monotheism means is not that God is the only divine spirit being in the cosmos, but that God is the one true ultimate creator who is king over every other being who created all other life. And what we are called to, what Israel is called to, what the church is called to, is to to worship that, that one God, Yahweh, as supreme uh, over those others as incomparable and unique uh, among the other beings. And to look at this real quick, uh, one of the immediate kind of pushbacks or questions that comes up is the Shema. And as as most of us are familiar with, uh, the Shema is kind of what what we call uh, one of the most central verses in, in all of Judaism. It's kind of the flagship uh, passage of sorts that that is a summary of, uh, of what it means for Jews to be loyal to Yahweh. It's in Deuteronomy 6-4. It's called the Shema because the first word which we translate as hear or listen is Shema in Hebrew. But hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it goes on to say love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now we can get into the weeds of this later. But if any of you guys have a study Bible or you you open up a Bible on the internet or something like that, you'll see that the word one, where we say the Lord is one, is the Hebrew word echad. And that word can, can mean one, but it, it could also mean unique or essentially incomparable. I see on my note, when
0: I click on it, the Lord our God, the Lord alone.
1: Yeah, so if you pull up, for instance, the NRSV, is one translation. It'll say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. So the idea here is that you can keep the word one in the translation. You just have to know this isn't about counting gods. This isn't a, a numerical formula for, for knowing God. If that were the case, it's not a, it doesn't carry much meaning. If if the, if the idea simply here is that there's one God, this this verse would be kind of an aside in Jewish theology. It wouldn't be the central verse of the entire text. The point is instead that Israel's only supposed to worship their true God, Yahweh, who chose them to, to be his people. And to to worship other gods, called idolatry, is is an act of tragic disloyalty to Yahweh. So this is a this is a commission here. It's a challenge. It's essentially their their ethical standard. That, that what it means to be Israel, what it means to be Jewish, and for us too as Christians, is to worship God alone or Yahweh as as unique in the cosmos. What that changes for us is it opens a door for us to say, okay, so are there other divine beings? In, in Psalm 82, when the text says that God is talking to God's, and some other places we see the sons of God. What are these beings? What does it mean for us if we grant the the possibility that there are other real gods out there? And and what we'll start to see is not only is that idea attested to throughout the entire scriptures, uh, but there are there are other ideas contingent. On that way of seeing the world, that cosmological worldview, that are some of the the central ideas underlying the entire biblical story.
0: Okay, okay, Tim. So this is this is really good stuff. It's a lot. Um, it changes a lot of stuff, I think. And uh, I, I think what what would be helpful is like to know, I guess, where is this? Where's this going? What do you see? If if once we understand this, and we're going to get into like the fall in the next few episodes, once we understand this stuff, what? is like the, the end game. What can this potentially change in our theology that we use on a you know, day-to-day basis, the way we view the world, the way we view Jesus? Like, What can this actually change for us?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think one of the most important questions we can ask, Partly because the answer is pretty much everything. In war, new Jersey, humility, new child that Again, the the metaphor is that this is the beginning of a book. If we miss the beginning, or we don't understand the beginning, or we think the beginning means something that it doesn't mean, we end up getting so far off track. The paradigms we're using are simply not the same paradigms. So. That's where terms like worldview are so helpful nowadays is what we're trying to do is piece together the breadcrumbs to get closer to the worldview, closer to the whole collection of thoughts and ideas and myths and paradigms and, and mental frameworks that were in the heads of, of these people who were a part of this literature. And the closer we can get to doing that, the closer we get to understanding what they meant, what they were doing, what they were saying. And I think we've just been sort of stuck in a hole in the Western wing of the church because we're so conditioned to want to uh, boil everything down into bullet point teachings, bullet point explanations. It's it's the, the world of systematic theology where we want to put everything in a nice, clean, organized boxes, parse it all out. But the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible tells stories. The Bible is is literature for the most part. It's based on literary ideas. It's based on mythological motifs. It's based on symbols and and cosmic ideas. And so there isn't a place where we can just go read the top 10 teachings in the Bible on the cosmos. It's not that easy. We essentially have to back up and and piece together like this big complicated puzzle. to to re-piece together the worldview of the authors. And as we said, some of the most important pieces for us to see are specifically the pieces that no one sits down to articulate explicitly. It's because they assume that everybody has these ideas in their head already, but we don't. And so it's hard to know, the first part of the answer to your question, Nate, it's hard to know where and when the ramifications are going to play out. So for now, I guess take my word for it, but what I've started to see is, man, conversations around atonement and what the cross meant, what Jesus's mission was, why he came and what he was trying to do. We'll get into the role of exorcisms and why you see demons everywhere in the gospels, and we'll start to connect the dots between some of the the geography and place names and even the genealogies that we've all just sort of brushed past because we just seem sort of like nebulous lists that don't mean much, we realize, man, these things are loaded with significance, theological significance. When we talk about issues of violence, we'll get in here soon to looking at the conquest of Canaan and and thinking about how to make sense of what appears like gross violence on God's behalf in the Old Testament. How do you reconcile that with the Jesus of the New Testament? We'll get into power and the role of the church. I mean, I mean this is one of the, the areas that, uh, that I'm most frustrated with and rubs me the wrong way is when you get into the book of Revelation or some of the apocalyptic literature in the New Testament and then you start trying to make a case for a, a Jesus that proved ultimately nonviolent in his life on earth Then we start trying to build a case for how violent Jesus is going to be when he comes back, because we don't know what to do with texts like the book of Revelation. We don't know what they're talking about, and none of the references to all of the crazy figures and animals and beasts and all that, in books like Revelation, we don't have any of that stuff in our heads. So we're missing the references, but we think we can sort of make it work without it. And some of where we end up, it's just, it's just horrible. And it's it's antithetical to the way of Jesus. Eschatology and what we're waiting for, heaven and hell, all of that stuff will slowly but surely end up getting flipped on its head and it we'll have whole new paradigms to approach this stuff. So I know it sounds weird. Right now we're just talking about, wait, there are other gods. Who are they? What? Why are we even talking about this stuff? This sounds like weird content relegated for the, the deep, dark holes of YouTube. I get it bear with us. From here, we're going to get into the fall for a few episodes, and, and that'll be essentially the center point to say, based on this worldview, what the biblical authors are saying is wrong with the world, and therefore what God is trying to do to set this world right is categorically different when you approach it from the biblical author's worldview as to when you approach it from our modern worldview. And that will play out in a hundred different ways, and it will play out in areas of our lives that have been some of the most painful, frustrating, disorienting experiences of Christianity where the theology that we've been told we have to hold just doesn't line up with life. And I've experienced through walking through some of this weirder theology, through getting into the uncomfortable stuff and waiting and being patient until I, I find enough information to make sense of it that there are whole new ways that are liberating and life-giving and good.
0: I'm so excited to start
1: getting into all this stuff. We're
0: going to do a few episodes on the fall, including some question and response episodes coming up here. And then we're going to start jumping into using this new worldview to look at some of the kind of controversial issues of the day and the things we're talking about with our neighbors and friends and family and everything. Feel free to reach out to us at almostheretical.com. Feel free to subscribe to this show so that you'll get notified of all new episodes. And finally, if you wouldn't mind, we'd love it if you could go onto iTunes and leave a review for this podcast. And the reason for that is because the reviews on iTunes help more people find the show. So that'd be super great if you could do that. And we'll see you at the next episode. For Nate and Tim, this is Almost Heretical. Peace. I really need your help. Can you say welcome to podcast podcast what how do you know what a podcast is and how do you know what we're doing Welcome to the podcast. what in the world <laughs>